Welcome to the Digital Transformation of Business podcast, brought to you by Hughes On. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. This is Mike Tippett, and of course, I'm joined by my two best friends, Chuck Keeler and Curtis Campbell. It's great to be here, guys. Yeah, sure is. Glad to know I made the best friend list. Yeah, there you go. That's right, for, at least for today. <laughs> so listen, today's topic is you can lead a horse to water. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you a couple of quick stories and you know, to our audience, if you'll indulge me. I have five children. The youngest today is now 15 years old. In the years raising them, I have learned that while raising young children is extraordinarily challenging, raising adult children is even more so. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? Well, I'll tell you. If you can't convince your child, especially your adult child, that something is their idea, if you can't lead them to that decision, they're never going to go. They're never going to agree. Had this conversation the other night with my wife. You need to give him a deadline. If I give him a deadline, then it's my deadline, not his deadline. I need to explain to him, coach him, show him how he needs to make a decision by a certain date. Then he decides it's a deadline. A good friend of mine in the Air Force, his name is Dr. Phil Westfall, absolutely one of the most incredible people I've ever had the chance to work with. He's a retired colonel from the Air Force. He now works as a civilian contractor in the Government Education and Training Network, which is a loose affiliation of government agencies that work together to share resources and do things to deliver training. But Dr. Westfall and I have had conversations over the years, and I'll come running to him in person or on the telephone. Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil, which in and of itself is kind of funny, <laughs> but I say, Dr. Westfall, We've got this new technology. It's going to revolutionize. It's going to revolutionize the way training is delivered in the workplace. And I'll talk to him about high definition and TVs and interactivity and using devices to text and everything. And Dr. Westfall invariably will look at me and say, that's all for naught. And I get very challenged with it. And I say, no, it isn't. And for years, he kept trying to explain to me. And it wasn't until two or three years ago, I finally caught what he was telling me. And what he was telling me is... If the student doesn't want to learn, no amount of high-definition video, cool computer technology, audio, everything will matter because the student won't engage. They may pass the course. You may force them through it. You may push them through like so many go through high school. But if the student doesn't want to learn... And the converse to that, which he took some time to explain to me, is if a student wants to learn... You can give them a manual in Braille, and they'll learn. They'll figure out. They'll go find somebody to translate it. They'll read every page of what you give. You don't have to give them. So if they're not motivated, all the fancy whiz-wang gadgets don't do any good. But if they are motivated, even the least little bit will work. So what does this all have to do with the digital transformation of business? Training is a core part of any transformation. If you're going to digitally transform your business, whatever that means, and we've had episode after episode talking about what that means, you're going to have to have training and communication. And that's where I get that you can lead the horse to water. Because we can take them there. We can say, we're rolling out Microsoft Teams. But if we don't give them the why, if I don't give them the what does it mean to me, I'm wasting time and I'm wasting money. And so I just kind of wanted to open that up into a bit of a discussion amongst us to talk about 
What does that mean? What do you think? We've been through product changes and system changes in our careers. What do you recall that's best about it? What do you recall that's bad about it? You kind of said it just a minute ago. And to me, probably the best thing, and I don't want to necessarily rehash what you just said, is but somebody who is being told that they need to be trained, they have to do their own why. You can't tell them the why. Even if you know that it's going to benefit them, they have to create their own why. It's just like our customers when we're talking to them about various initiatives. If they don't personally have their own why, we can sit there all day long and try them, tell them about all this cool technology that we have, and they're not going to believe it. They're not going to indulge in it, and they're not going to use it, let alone if they do buy it. And so to me, it's if they have their why and they know what it's going to do for them, you're obviously going to be that much more likely to succeed with them. And I see the same thing with my kids, and I see the same thing in business meetings that I'm in. They have to get their why. They have to understand to themselves what it's going to do for them and how it's going to benefit them, how it's going to make their lives better. And ultimately, that's where it takes off. The other day, my daughter wanted so badly to go swimming. We've been asking her for five straight days to clean her room and told her that if you don't clean your room, we can't do X, right? And I'll tell you what, when she decided that morning that she needed to go swimming that day, you better believe her room was clean in about 30 minutes because she knew that there was something in it for her. It's the same thing with a business opportunity in my mind, is if they understand that it's going to drive incremental sales or it's going to increase brand loyalty among their employees, or a person realizes, hey, I may be getting that next promotion if I do this training. The secret sauce is right there in my mind. I think it's a tough one because you have different degrees of willingness. Your daughter was pretty much not willing, but then there was enough willingness in her to at least get what she wanted. And then at some point, she kicked it into high gear and got the job done. Bear in mind, the incentive five days prior wasn't the swimming. It was the fact that she woke up that morning saying, I want to go swimming. Well, we've been asking you to do something for five straight days, and you haven't been willing to do it. So incentive is definitely part of this. Now, I, I keep thinking, how does this apply to the hiring process? Because in this analogy, you have the one type of horse that will get to the edge of the water and not drink, just won't drink no matter what you do, will not drink, does not have a desire to drink, does not have a willingness to drink. You have the other end of the spectrum being the horse that will willingly do it with very little encouragement or no encouragement. You hand them the book of Braille, they're on it. Then you have everybody else in the middle somewhere. And so is this something that you need to consider when you're hiring? Do you say, we're going to try to look for somebody who is either in the middle or to the extreme to where they're really ambitious about learning? You're going to look for flexibility, right? I think one of the key things that when you're hiring somebody, you need to ask them and talk to them about and understand is, can you handle change, right? Now, I'll be candid that engineers, men and women who write code, design hardware, they don't like change. That's part of the personality type that you just know when you hire an engineer and for the men and women that work for us and hear this podcast and want to come and argue with me, bring it on, but they don't like change, <laughs> right? You have to accept that because I want the engineering talent and I know that that's part of it. But if you're a marketing person, if you're a salesperson, if you are a business person, you know, in some aspect, you're going to have to be able to deal with change. And if you can't, then I don't think you should be hired. And the last thing I'll say is you probably don't want your finance person too easily changing. You want them to stay hard and fast on those rules <laughs> right, and keep right. you honest. But no, I think you're right, Chuck. I think if in the interview process, if you don't suss out whether or not this person is good with change, then that's a mistake. Now, another thought, too, is that 
we often kind of have the go-to of make it mandatory. We're going to force them to do this. They get fired if they don't do it. But I think often there's a better way. There's a way that says management really is on the hook to make it worth their while, to give them the why, like Curtis said, to make it something that they would actually desire to do. And I'm not talking about the horse that refuses to drink. I'm talking about everybody in the middle where you say, okay, here's something that nobody is absorbing. Nobody's consuming. None of our employees like this thing. We can make it mandatory. We could force them all to do it by this date, or we can rethink our approach. Maybe we're the ones that are doing something wrong. Yeah. I was just going to say in my mind, using your analogy of the horse and the ones that are in the middle, if you really think about it, every single horse has to drink in some way, shape or form. What I'm getting at here is you may have the people that are refusing to drink because they may refuse to drink here. That doesn't mean they may refuse to drink somewhere else. They've just never been able to convince themselves of what it's doing for them. I agree with what you're saying. Management has to lead by example. Okay, so if you're going to do something, the why must include an example. If the senior leadership says, we are going to do this, but you don't see them doing it, that's a problem. What they're saying is, do what I say, don't do what I do. I'll tell you an example of what we're going through right now. We're rolling out Microsoft Teams. We rolled out Office 365, as you guys know, and we're rolling out Teams as our collaboration tool. And I initially fought against it. I had an alternate solution that I thought we should be using. And I was in a position to be in the rooms representing the alternate view. Long and the short, I didn't win my case, but now I'm in. Okay, so if you go online right now to the training system that we have in place for people to learn, there's a leaderboard. I'm at the top of that leaderboard. Oh, okay? nice. I'm not, I'm not, well, I'm bragging a little bit because I'm kind of proud <laughs> of it. But the thing of it is, is everybody in this section or in our company, our group, who gets an email from me saying, please do the training, go through the material, will go on there and they'll see, I'm not just asking, I'm doing it too. And I think that's important. I personally think that it was my responsibility to, at a minimum, be seen, not necessarily at the top of the leaderboard, be seen on the leaderboard as doing it so that everybody can understand I'm not just asking. And then as it goes broader and broader and broader in our organization, more and more of the senior leadership needs to be taking the training and then using the tool as well, openly and broadly. People who know me in the organization know that I live by this mantra of sell the problem you're solving, not the solution. And so, again, if you're showing them by example or not by example, how it's going to empower them and make their lives easier and better, it's a no brainer. And, uh, you know, when it comes to technology, for better or for worse, I'm going to jump in the pool guy. If a decision is made, we're going to use some form of technology. I jump in. I'm grateful that our company allows us to use Mac or PCs, you know, Mac or Windows. But I'll be honest with you, if they came around and said, hey, you know what? No more Macs, you guys. We're all going to have to use Windows. I would grab a Surface tablet, and I would spend the weekend. I'd just jump in. As we rolled out Office 365, I've been a Dropbox user. I have been a user of Evernote. But now we have OneDrive, and we have OneNote in the Office 365 suite. Three, four weeks ago, I just said, okay, move it. Move it over. I didn't do that blindly. 
I asked a lot of questions. Okay, I do this on a routine basis in Dropbox. I do this on a routine basis in Evernote. Can I expect the same kind of results or the same functionality? UI can be different. I understand that. You learn that, you know, whatever. But can I expect to be able to do? Because I don't want to lose functionality in a transformation. And once I learned I would be able to do that, I took all the notes at Evernote, moved them into OneNote. And thank goodness there was a way to do that as an export and import. But then the same thing with Dropbox. I've moved both personal and the business, the two different pieces, into OneDrive on my tablet and on my phone and desktop computer and everything. I've got these apps running because if you try to operate, you know, one leg in and one leg out, all you get is sore. That's all there is to it. Well, and there's a lot of tools that I've seen various people in the organization and other organizations use, too. It's like if there's not that integration that you just very clearly stated between a tablet and a desktop and a laptop and everything like that, you're just going to spend a bunch of time and waste a bunch of time going between platforms and you're going to lose your mind and ultimately not even end up using it. Yeah. And I think I may have inadvertently touched on another thing, too, about transformation and preparing for it and everything. And that is if you try to limit things too far. IT organizations are in a tough spot, right? They're called upon to support everything that the organization does, okay? There's core functionality that has to be there, and I think any IT leader in the world would tell you, oh, it'd be so nice if we only had one computer platform, right? If we only had one. But in this process, if they'd come to me and said, we're moving to Office 365, and because of that, you can no longer use a Mac, I think it would have been a much harder sell on me, a significantly harder. You know, at the end of the day, I love my job. I'm going to do what I got to do, but it would have been a much harder sell. One of the first things I did was I went in the app store and I looked, okay, yeah, OneNote, OneDrive, Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, everything are available not only for the Mac, which obviously we already knew, but iPad, iPhone, these things. So... There needs to be a little bit of flexibility. You can't just tell people, sorry, you know, we're going all the way over here. But So what about an organization with a large hourly workforce? Mm -hmm. People in the stores, for example, people who aren't planning on making that a career. What about this analogy of the horse leading it to water, but you can't make it drink? How does that apply to, let's say an organization has 100,000 hourly employees that are on the front lines. And let's assume that a very small percentage doesn't want to drink, will not drink. And then there's a much larger percentage that will if you lead them to the water and if you encourage them and if you give them a bit of incentive. But they're not particularly enthusiastic about it because, A, they don't know what's in it for them. B, they don't know how long they're going to be there, but they know that they're not going to be there forever. And it's not a big career move for them. How do you motivate tens of thousands of people who may not be dedicated to the company, like somebody who has been there for many years, who's made a career out of that company. It's communication. First and foremost, not even training, it's communication. You have to be able to engage these people. You talk about the small percentage who never will. Well, that's your disengaged workforce. Sometimes in retail and places, you're forced to deal with that because you need somebody to turn the lights on, somebody to be there to punch the cash register, and you don't like it, but you may be stuck with it. But I maintain that even if I am working in a job that I know is just temporary, I'm a high school student, I'm early in my career, I'm late in my career, this is just a temporary thing or, or whatever, leadership's got to be able to communicate. And you said it as you set up the example, if they don't know their why, 
Well, yeah, if they don't know their why, it needs to be communicated to them. It has to be. You cannot just simply assume that frontline employee or that any employee is going to go, okay, uh, you know, you've got to tell them. They've got to understand it. Yeah, communication. And again, you touched on something else there. If you've got a frontline army of 100,000 people, we're talking big box retail or some other industry, you know, distribution services or whatever, they're not going to have laptops. You're not going to have the luxury of sending them an email that you expect them to read. And you're going to need a video solution that they can be inundated with in their break room when they're in the hallways. However you go about doing it, you've got to have a video-based solution and I maintain that if you're going to do that, you've got to have one that lets you get that message out there quickly. Not that you're going to wake up one morning as a CEO and decide that we're going to change ERP systems. So let me tell you why. But we're going to change ERP systems. And I want to explain why. We've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm going to put together some thoughts. But then that same system can help me on the morning when we wake up and there's an emergency. Do we have any examples of that where companies have transformed in that direction and it's helped their large frontline workforce? Well, our retail customers that we've worked with at, at JCPenney and at Kohl's, they are transforming right now. And we've talked about this, and that is retail, as an example, they're going away from the idea that everything that gets shipped gets shipped out of a distribution center. They're moving to the, hey, we've got inventory over here. Let's send it from there. So you order something online or on the telephone, and they're doing a couple of different calculations. One, this store over here is deep in this particular product, and based on their POS reports, they're probably not going to sell out of it. Let's help them out. Let's move it along out of there. Two, this customer lives in this particular zip code. Is our store in that neighborhood, in that area? Does it have the inventory? Because why ship it from a distribution center halfway across the country when I can ship it from a store down the street or have somebody deliver it from the store down the street and have it there same day. So there's those two kind of transformational things happening. And I know this for a fact with these retail customers, the store managers were reluctant at first. They didn't understand, well, why should I bring on a staff person in the morning hours that I don't need out on the floor because I've already got those people covered to work in the back room helping out the distribution organization. And they came back and said, because we're going to count that as revenue in your store. Oh. And they communicated that. And so now it's all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if I sold it through the cash register or I sold it through the distribution out the back door. I get credit for it. Okay. That communication happened and, and away they went. And then likewise, they found their why. That was it. They communicated their why. So, you know, you asked if there's any examples of that. Yeah. And that could carry all the way down to the front line. Why do I have to come in at 8 o'clock? They don't need me on the floor and everything. Well, because if we get this stuff out the door to help the distribution organization before 10 a.m., then it gets delivered and it makes our company better, makes our customers happier, whatever the whatevers are. And you need to communicate that. And again, we go back to what we've said before, that frontline army of retail employees and so forth. They don't have a computer to get this as an email, not that they'd read the email anyway. So in this analogy of the horse, let's say you lead the horse to the water, but the water is disgusting. And maybe this goes back to what we talked about earlier, but what is the role of this transformation and of management to say, okay, the horse does want water. We're going to assume that most of the horses in our organization do want to drink water, and they will drink water even if it's disgusting. 
if they absolutely have to or if they're thirsty enough. So what is the water? Is the water what we're transforming to or is the... No. First of all, to what we were talking about a second ago, if I as an employee just refuse to acknowledge that shipping stuff is good for the company and good for our store, therefore, and good for me, if I just refuse, okay, if I just say that that water is no good, then you start to have an HR discussion about, listen, you need to participate in this. But I think if management's making good decisions, the water will be good. And now we just need to inform the employee of its goodness. There you go. Well, and especially if the senior leadership is also willing to drink out of that cup. Yeah. In addition to communicating it, if all of a sudden a senior leadership person shows up in your store and is working in the back room to get stuff, you know, again, standing within my example, oh, well, if it's worth her time to be here and doing that, it sure as heck's worth my time. So, and again, it goes back to that whole leadership by example. If I mandate that we're going to use a tool, but I don't use the tool, or worse, I use the old tool because, you know, then that's poor leadership. This scenario that you're painting out right now reminds me of when Joe Bennett on The Office is staying late and therefore the entire office is feeling they need to stay late. No one would go home at five because she was still there. But I think the point is clear and I think it's actually valid to what you're talking about is if a manager is willing to roll up their sleeves and do that work, other people will likewise see the benefit potentially. That's peer pressure. Yeah, it's just peer pressure, right? Ooh. And, And by the way, peer pressure works both ways. Yeah, healthy peer pressure is good. That's right. And the negative peer pressure is more of a well, if she or he isn't going to do it, why should I? And if I was counseling, coaching, or working with an employee in my organization who came to me and said, that person is not, why should I? I would turn it around on them and said, because I want you to encourage them to do it. I want you to show them the value, the happiness, the pleasure, the benefit of doing whatever we're talking about. Well, guys, this was great. Like I told you, walking in the room, I had this thought in my head this morning, and I wanted to sit down and have a podcast discussion on it, so I appreciate you indulging me. But to our audience, we thank you for joining us yet again. And look at your own organization. Look at yourself. One of the greatest things about podcasts and things is we get to listen to people talk about it and then do a little self-reflection. Are you one of the horses that's being led to water, or are you one of the horses that's being led to a drink? Thank you. Have an awesome day. Have an awesome day.